Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Welcome. Gotta introduce yourself to the audience, please. Hi, and thank you for having me. My name is Gada Sasa. In Arabic, that's Gada Sasa. I am a third-generation Palestinian refugee. My mom is from a village near Nablus called Madama, and my father is from the city of Ramde, which is now part of what's considered Israel, but we refer to it as 1948 Palestine. And I'm a PhD candidate in international relations at McMaster University, where I write about Israeli green colonialism, and I'm working on finishing my degree. Well, you can't go and drop a term like that and not explain a little bit more. What is Israeli green colonialism? Sure. So I look at how Israel weaponizes environmentalism or uses environmental policies like national parks and nature reserves to colonize Palestinian land. So, um, for example, I look at um, American Independence Park, which Israel has established over several Palestinian villages with the aid of American taxpayer money and the work of the Jewish National Fund, a registered charity in Canada and many other countries in the world, um, even though this is primarily a colonial and racist institution. And um, so, yeah, I look at how Israel planted pine trees over destroyed Palestinian villages literally to cover up the rubble, to Europeanize the land while they, you know, they're planting these invasive pines while at the same time deforesting the native flora, like the olive trees. And um, and then, of course, it's part of this broader agenda to kind of greenwash their occupation, to talk about how they're making the desert bloom. And um, as if nobody lived in Palestine before, or as if Palestinians neglected their land. And um, yeah, it's used as a way for it to greenwash its regime of apartheid and ethnic cleansing. And um, at the same time, it also greenwashes its crimes not only against the Palestinian people, but also the environment, right? So um, what I do is kind of like locate Israel's actions within a broader history. So I look at how, you know, national parks, for example, were invented by the United States, right? And I look at how um, Western environmentalism puts this separation between nature and humans that doesn't really exist. And it advocates for the exclusion of people, especially women, people of color, and poor people from nature, so-called nature, in order to protect it. Um, and so nature is used as a tool to justify many human rights violations. And so I actually look at Palestinian environmentalism and other forms of environmentalism as examples of how we can challenge the human nature binary in order to ensure that we are protecting human rights as well as the environment. And um, yeah, so I guess that's a summary of my research. <laughs> That's fascinating. And it's not even why we called you in here uh, to have a discussion. I feel like maybe we should have that. That's an episode in itself because we see greenwashing used as a tool for many, many things. Didn't realize apartheid was one of them. But, you know, that's why we're always learning. <laughs> I actually called you in here because of the massive amount of work that you are doing 
surrounding political prisoners, Palestinian political prisoners in Israeli jails. Sorry. And even though the audience will understand my disdain for electoral politics, and we'll get into the possibilities in a little bit, but you do a lot of your work in and around Parliament Hill. I mean, you might not always physically be there, but your targets and appeals, literally some of your words have been to the elected. And I kind of wanted to get into that with you on how effective you feel that is, but also the different ways in which you need to engage with these people. Because we typically talk about engaging in your immediate community, not necessarily with the powerful. And although I don't want to do that work, I, I understand it needs to be done. So let's give people an idea of what it's like to advocate for Palestine on Parliament Hill. It... Yeah, sure. Thank you. So basically, I have been following the case of Ahmed Manasra, who is a Palestinian who's been imprisoned by Israel since he was 13 years old and tortured by them. So essentially, he was arrested at first, accused of stabbing Israeli settler settlers, him and his cousin, Hassan. Hassan was immediately killed at the scene. And Ahmed was run over by a car, like a settler car. And there was like a horrible image that video that emerged at the time. It went viral of Ahmed, you know, essentially, you know, bleeding to death and settlers just cursing at him. And then the, he was hospitalized at the time. Actually, I think it was falsely announced that Ahmed had died and I just couldn't believe it. Like, I just thought, wow, I just saw someone like die. Like, and, um, then basically we found out actually he survived, but, you know, you saw him handcuffed in the hospital and then he was brutally interrogated. There was a video that leaked, I guess, of Israeli interrogating him without his parents or lawyers. Um, Ahmed kept saying, I can't remember. He obviously had a brain injury. And um, from what I understand, he was also possibly on like sedative. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of illegality illegalities going on um despite all this the israeli courts actually cleared that he was innocent but since he was 13 he's been imprisoned and he's just turned 21 at the beginning of this year in january and um not only is he in prison but since november 2021 israel held him under solitary confinement and so um his trial was actually supposed to take place last wednesday but Ahmed was too sick to attend. He was hospitalized. And so Israel delayed his trial date, but they also renewed his solitary confinement for another six months. <laughs> so um, Ahmed's health physically and mentally is deteriorating because he obviously like he it is kind of torture, right? According to international law, more than 15 days of solitary confinement is prohibited and cruel torture. And at this point, they've kept him for almost two years now, and it's going to be more than that. Um, so he has, you know, been diagnosed with schizophrenia, severe depression. And yeah, so basically his life is on the line, right? He is suicidal right now. And I guess, um, yeah, it's, it's um, for a long time I have been, you know, engaged 
with pro-Palestine work because, you know, <laughs> I, um, I guess I mostly grew up in so-called Canada, but I am, I am Palestinian. I, I have my family back home, right, under occupation. I, you know, I, I, it's my responsibility, I feel, to act and, and defend. And I speak out not just for the Palestinian community, right? I speak out for LGBT rights. I speak out for, like... Um, women's rights, like I, you know, advocate in general <laughs> against injustice, even when that's like calling out my own community. And basically, for a while, I felt like I had to take a bit of a break from my activism. But in December of last year, when I heard that Israel renewed Ahmed Salat, you can find me, I just thought I kind of had to drop everything and just do something for this, this man, right, this boy. And I just, I don't know why I had this idea that like in January... No, I just thought, like, I would love to do something on his birthday. And it just so happened. And when I looked it up, it was in January. So, and it fell on a Sunday. So, like, everything kind of fell in line. And I am, like, a believer. So, I do feel like sometimes, I know, God just makes things really easy. And so, I thought, okay, maybe this is an interesting idea. So, we did, like, a birthday protest. And it was outside of the Israeli consulate in Toronto. It was a snowy day, but we had balloons, gifts, and it was really beautiful. We, like, blocked the intersection and... And we had a protest there. We gave some speeches. And um, yeah, I guess like um, what I thought was maybe like an interesting or strange idea actually took up because like all the major Palestine and like human rights organizations, even Amnesty International, they were all talking about Ahmad on his birthday and like making their own posts. Or even I saw there were protests for Ahmad in like in um, the U.S. and other places. So yeah, that was really encouraging. So I guess my first instinct was to go to the community to mobilize. And, you know, we got endorsements from Defense Children International Canada and like Amnesty and Independent Jewish Voices and all these groups. Um, and then basically, um, so yeah, it, nothing was really planned for me to directly engage with government officials, because like you, I'm actually quite disillusioned with the electoral politics and the system because, um, you know, just having studied political science and having um, <laughs> just, you know, I, for example, a couple of years ago, I was elected as the representative for graduate students on the board of governors at McMaster University, which is the highest decision making body. And I just saw how corrupt it was on the inside and how difficult it is to make change when, you know, there, there's, you know, one or, or a few of you uh, fighting for change, but then the rules are changing. And then <laughs> um, it, it's just a very, honestly, it was a very traumatic experience being on there when you're constantly lied to and gaslit and um, just treated poorly, right? So... Uh, but actually, I noticed Alexandre Bouderis, he's an MP based in um, Quebec, and he just kept like, he was one of the first people, you know, to like my post about Ahmed, so I was like, okay, I have to reach out to him, right? <laughs> so I reached out to him and, uh, you know, I thought maybe let's just do a petition, and sure enough, he agreed, and he read it in Parliament, and, you know, as like, as... Palestinians were so deeply erased by the Canadian government and just worldwide that for like, you know, sometimes the bare minimum is like huge. <laughs> so for them to say, you know, Ahmed's name parliament, for them to, you know, um, yeah, I thought that was impactful. And um, obviously the response that we received 
from the Canadian foreign ministry was disgraceful. They didn't even mention Ahmed's name. They just gave this whole like usual, oh, Canada supports peace between Israel and Palestine. Always Israel first, right? And like uh, we advocate for Israeli children before <laughs> Palestinian children, as if Israeli children are the primary victims. So it was just like a terrible statement. Um, not really addressing any of our points. Basically, we were saying, you know, UN human rights experts have demanded Ahmed's immediate release. Same with Amnesty International. Like, we're not asking for the moon here. We're just asking for them to issue a statement, right? I mean, I would hope that Canada opposes the imprisonment and torture of children and prisoners in general. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, like, altogether surprising, and actually, I decided to do the press conference in Parliament when I was encouraged by politicians in, you know, who support Palestine to do this. And as far as I'm concerned, it was the first Palestinian press conference in Parliament. So again, for me, that was really as far as I know, I haven't seen so anything like that. And I've asked. You're not joking when you say, you know, Palestinians and Palestinian voices are erased by the Canadian <laughs> government. Like, I know that there's no official liaison group, right? You, you folks have had to kind of create their own nothing government funded in terms of advocating for Palestine. They're not recognized as a state by the Canadian government. And in all these years of Palestine and Israel issues coming up, right? The amount of massive incursions, the rulings on the occupation, this is like the first time they've allowed a Palestinian to speak. Yeah, um, I don't know. I think um, I don't think it's so much like allowing Palestinians to speak, but I don't know. I feel like there's just been such heavy erasure, and you know, Doctor Mohanna um, Dayash, and you know, he's a Canadian Palestinian professor. He talks about how like Palestinians were so toxified, right? So people are afraid of even talking about Palestine, let alone in a place like the parliament, right, that's, like, severely, like, surveilled. And um, so I can understand why people hesitated. Uh, but we thought, basically, um, it was a Monday in May 15. It fell on the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. And we also wanted to... Um, the, the UN, the United Nations, was recognizing the Nakba for the first time, commemorating it. And so we were calling on Canada to commemorate Nakba Day, but also to speak about Ahmad and urge for his release. So we held his photos and um, it was really great. We had, you know, uh, representatives of several groups speak, including um, one called Canada Stand Up for Palestinian Children. And, you know, this is a Christian group. We had independent Jewish voices there. We had a member of Association of Palestinian Canadians based in Ottawa. And also we had a Nakba survivor. So that was really powerful. And he spoke about, you know, how he was ethnically cleansed in his family and how his, um, you know, young teacher, like sister was martyred by the Israeli regime and their expulsion. So I was there to translate for him from Arabic. So that was powerful. Unfortunately, <laughs> is, uh, you know, how Palestinians are treated is we didn't get much press coming to document or to ask us questions. And I, you know, sent emails to many journalists and many media, alternative media, mainstream media, 
news tips. Um, you know, I thought at least, you know, this is like, you know, I was trying to say that on May 15, Nakba Day and, um, you know, everything going on globally that maybe it would get the attention, but still, you know, and we released, released uh, before that, like press advisories in English and French. Um, so that was, of course, kind of disappointing. Um, the Hill did write a little bit about us, which was nice. <laughs> the newspaper based in Ottawa. But um, other than that, honestly, it was, again, relying on, like, a lot of the um, past and solidarity groups locally that, you know, kind of shared our videos and, and got our word out. And, yeah, and then in the evening of May 15, actually, there was an event called Palestine on the Hill. And so it was, this event was, like, 700 people. There were ambassadors and, like, a lot of MPs. And it was basically... You know, speaking about the Nakba, and they had some like cultural exhibits, and so I actually managed to be able to speak on stage. I asked the organizers, and I just drew attention to the hey. This morning we had a press conference, and none of you were there. I'm specifically looking at the MPs, right? The media wasn't there, <laughs> and it was so nice to like know that they're somewhat there, or you know, being half having to listen to you. Um, but basically, uh, my speech was probably the most well-received of in the night because it was just came from the heart and it was advocating for Palestinian prisoners who I feel are really forgotten. And even though they suffer some of the worst, you know, violence of Israeli settler colonialism, you know, it's one thing to get martyred, but to be tortured for years. And um, it's just, it's a horrible thing. So... Yeah, basically, I presented a bit about it, and <laughs> um, I realized after that, while I was speaking, the um, MPs were basically having a photo shoot on the side, and there were photographers on stage almost bumping into me. If you see the videos. <laughs> Trying to get a better shot of them. Because, yeah, I was going to ask you about photo ops, and, <laughs> you know, at one point, you did name drop Alexandra Bouris here, and I've seen you come and thank him for coming through for Palestine. And I was, I was going to say, you know, is that what does that look like on the hill? Is that more often than not showing up for a photo op and not making the kind of bolder statements that you need made? I mean, kudos for the petition. We know the NDP is supposed to be shifting their position there according to what members had passed in their last convention, right? So there should be more room for work there within that party and getting it to the floor. But it seems like that's a bit of a rare commodity in terms of actionable items that politicians yeah. do, right? And so, yeah, picturing you spilling your heart out <laughs> especially these personal connections that you're making with this work, right? Talking to families and how you must internalize a lot of that, especially as a Palestinian yourself. And then seeing that opportunistic imagery and, and all that politicking that you have to put up with. But it's tough though, like, especially when we're talking about Palestine and I'm, you know, kind of criticizing for spending time in Parliament, perhaps. It's not a local issue. So although you do 
need the community on board. I think we know that most Canadians don't agree with solitary confinement, that they don't agree with the occupation, that they understand that war crimes have been committed there, are being committed there. It's it's really the politicians that are lagging in terms of doing something about it. And then you've got that added disadvantage of essentially lobbying a foreign government. But Canada can make a statement and that would add political pressure. But in the end, you need Israel to act. And so that is a far way removed when we talk about the political pressures that we have to put in there to get what we want or what needs to happen. That's a tough job for you folks, especially as the diaspora. So you don't ha- you you not only have to deal with the barriers that exist within the Canadian government, right? The Zionist attitudes that exist within the ruling party there. But even that is still far removed from your goal of, you know, direct pressure to Israel to do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um I guess um, I guess I wanted to go back to the May 15 press conference. Basically, I actually sent an email in advance to a bunch of the MPs who were supposed to be in solidarity with Palestine. A lot of them showed up to the event in the evening, and all of them told me, oh, like, we're busy. If they respond, a lot of them just didn't even respond. So that was disappointing, you know, and Alexandre Bouleris also couldn't come. And yeah, of course, I do wish that they do more, you know, and I feel like a lot of excuses are made for politicians, like, oh, you know, like they're busy or like, you know, like I I am personally I know I'm so inspired by you, Jessa. I know you for so long and I know how you speak truth to power and, you, you know, and like I'm I'm very much like the same. I i am there to speak honesty. I'm a principled person. And so um, it's hard for me to like understand that because like you like, you know, um, like people should know that, yes, uh, people who speak about Palestine can be demonized. Right. But it's like not as bad as what Palestinians are facing. And I think people sometimes don't grasp like, you know, people talk about Palestinians being so brave. Well, there's a reason we're so brave because we're literally facing a genocidal project. All settler colonial regimes, including the Canadian regime, are genocidal. They're based on eliminating all natives. Right. And um, so this is why we feel like we have nothing to lose, even though I am, you know, living I'm forced to live outside of Palestine, you know. I was never able to live, visit even my dad's city of Fremle because I have a Palestinian ID for my mom. So I can't visit, can't live there. Um, but, you know, it's like I can't escape the trauma of statelessness, my culture being eroded, um, uh, just, you know, the, the violence, I, institutional violence and all the other forms of anti-Palestinian racism I face all the time here. So... I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> sorry, I went on like a, a rant. You know, I got emotional. I don't know. <laughs> well, we met at York University doing Palestinian activism. And I can attest even back then as a student watching the institutional racism play out on people's lives. And I surely witnessed the demonization of anything Palestinian, quite literally, right? Um, Mural with the flag, voices, any actions were always uh, countered, but at the highest level as well, right? You talk about the Board of Governors at McMaster, you've gone up against the Board of Governors at York. What are those barriers like for you? Because that bravery might be by necessity, but there's a lot 
to discourage you from doing this work, right? Like there is probably a lot of personal toll that you've experienced that a lot of folks would just need to stop. And in fact, you did have to take a break. But maybe you can share with folks just without sharing any specific traumas or if that's what you want to do, but I don't, I don't mean for this to be trauma porn, but I don't think people truly grasp how combative it is to simply demand for human rights in Palestine. Because as a white person, even I feel it. And when I go to speak on Palestine, in the back of my mind, I know someone out there is going to call me an anti-Semite. I know it. I have to brace for it. Right. And I have to persevere regardless. And I'm not trying to make myself sound courageous, but I'm telling you what my thought process is every single time. Every time I I use a hashtag free Palestine or anything or I even want to like something, it goes through my brain that I am just I am asking for it in a way. I, I am opening myself up to what I have experienced myself. But that's at the smallest level. I'm not sticking my neck out as an academic in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, so I, I guess I just remembered now what I want to say. I wanted to say, actually, so I hinted at this, but I do speak out on Twitter, even sometimes against, like, I speak out about my own community, right? I, I've and, seen But that. what I mean by that, I mean the Palestinian solidarity community more broadly. So, for example, I said independent Jewish voices joined us for the press conference. Until now, independent Jewish voices has not taken a stance against Zionism, Right. Even though they're, you know, a comparable organization, which is Jewish Voices for Peace in the U.S., they have taken a stance against Zionism. I went to, you know, Independent Jewish Voices conference this year and I was just disappointed that I felt constantly erased as uh, Palestinian by allies. Right. And, you know, I don't want to get into that too much, but even I said there was a member of Association of Palestinian Canadians from Ottawa who joined us for the press conference. He didn't mention Ahmad's name at all, okay? And, um, you know, I, I spoke to him before because he had just sent me the speech. I asked him to speak about Ahmad, but unfortunately, a lot of Palestinians are even afraid to touch the issue of prisoners. Okay? Why? Because they think that, you know, like, um, I don't know, I guess they think they'll be targeted, you know, because, like, you know, like the prisoners are, like, somewhat criminal or... I'd, I'd, yeah, I like... I don't know. I, I don't think they believe that, of course, but it's like there it's just like so much fear. Right. And it's not you know, it, it's just like a lot of organizations. I mean, um, I'm a board member for Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. Right. And like there's even troubles there <laughs> trying to get them to be involved. So I'm I'm saying like, of course, you look at politicians and then you look at, you know, and it's disappointing because, of course, Palestinian youth movement, there's like a lot of segments of the Palestinian population that are like extremely courageous and outspoken about these issues. And but it's just unfortunate that a lot of times, yeah, we have to push to unite within the Palestinian solidarity movement in so-called Canada. And I think there's a lot of unity work that needs to be done. OK, but um, also, I guess, um yeah, so I, I feel like, okay, I'll, I'll go back then too. <laughs> um, so basically what happened is before I advocate for Ahmed, most of the work I've been doing is around BDS. So getting folks to, you know, 
know why it is important and act on boycotting Israel. I think that's the most powerful thing we can do as people who live outside of Palestine. And so, yeah, so when you talk about, you know, institutional harassment, I guess, yes, I am a victim of a lot of institutional violence, but also I've been resisting against a lot of the oppression. For example, at York University, I led a motion calling on my faculty of environmental studies to end and not renew the relationship with Arava, which is an Israeli academic institute because of its greenwashing and complicity in Palestinian human rights violations. And it passed. It was possibly the first academic boycott against Israel in North America. Like, it passed 20, I think it was um, 15 to 7. And you can bet, you know, I face like, bullying by professors there and intimidation. And um, we saw immediately after that vote won how CJA, the primary Israeli lobby in Canada, like went after the president of York, Rhonda Lenton. And they I know this because they literally put it on like their Facebook page. And she released a statement, but it was so sketchy because it didn't even have her signature. It wasn't sent to all students like other statements that she does. But it was just kind of like, Faculties don't have the right to boycott. It has to go through me. So she was like clamping down on faculty democracy. And um, yeah, and it was just really wild because then a month later, they tried to like reverse that motion without even telling me. I just happened to find out, you know, the day before and I went to New York <laughs> and I defended it. So the motion stayed. But even then, basically, they kind of like rewrote the minutes and then the dean, the dean actually of my faculty, he voted for my motion at first, okay? And then he came out being like, I don't know what I was doing. Gata manipulated us. Um, like, the president is right. We don't have the right to boycott. It has to go through me. Like, it's a hortative motion. It goes to the dean. And then the dean goes, like, but I'm like, but you voted for it as the dean, right? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, you can see how there's so much intimidation, you know? And it's interesting because after I finished my master's in environmental studies, I was contemplating pursuing law or doctoral studies. And a Palestinian lawyer who's really wonderful at the time advised me to go to law school because he's like, as an academic, you're always under the mercy of, of the institution, right? But, you know, I still, here I am. I kind of just went with the flow and I love studying and teaching. And so it made sense for me to be in academia and... I still push wherever I can. For example, two years ago, we were going to take part in the International Studies Association conference. Basically, this is a conference that happens every year, and it's the major one for my discipline. So all of us go to attend it. It's like, you know, over 100 countries, I guess, they go to this conference. And basically, I think two years ago, we were going to do like the first BDS panel. And it was with like Rafi Ziadeh and a lot of other big names. And it was plainly rejected by the ISA because they said uh, we didn't have a Zionist voice <laughs> for balance. And so at the time, basically, like the group, I was mostly working with a group of profs on this panel. So they were kind of responding to them and not really going anywhere. It's and a so, panel, not a debate. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I think I was kind of pushing for more... I guess, aggressive approach <laughs> with them. No doubt. Because I feel like sometimes academics, they're too afraid to organize and speak up. And they're too kind of like using kind of, you know, polite, like diplomatic language that doesn't do anything, right? 
And so about a year later, what happened was actually the conference was like a hybrid model. So a lot of people actually didn't even go and it was in Nashville. So I actually went at the time and I got to see like the president of the ISA and just confronted him. He's like, send me the emails. And I did. And and then basically he said, um, oh, no, you know, your event was canceled because of the pandemic. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, no. Here are the proof is clearly not the pandemic. Like, <laughs> And then um, he's like, oh, just apply again. I said, no, I'm not applying again until you ensure that we are going to be accepted. It's not going to be declined and for no reason. And I just made it clear, this is this anti-Palestinian racism. This is suppression of free speech. You know, you wouldn't go to a Black Lives Matter panel and be like, why isn't there a white supremacist voice, right? At the no, conference, or had... even an environmental and ask for big oil and gas to take the stage. <laughs> right, exactly. Or you don't have, um, you know, ISA does these like uh, land acknowledgements. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you know what I mean? I so there's so much, there's so much hypocrisy. Yeah. And so when I sent him that email, I think I was scaring a lot of scholars because I was like, you know, kind of like speaking for that group. But um, sure enough, he said, okay. And they guaranteed that it would be approved and it was approved. So last year we held a panel. It was this time the conference was in Montreal. Good on you. So, yeah. So I I am thankful that I don't just do activism, but I do see results in my work. I am results oriented, right? Like, um, unfortunately, I think... It's not just related to Palestine. I think a lot of times in activism and like social media, I think a lot of people are just like driven by like, you know, kind of like you said, it's like like the photo ops. It's more like about image. It's not even just the politicians, right? It's kind of like um, just trying to look good and, and put others down. And it's not actually about helping the people of Palestine or the oppressed fight back. So that's why I thought it was... Um, yeah, and, and uh, about my writing, I guess I can mention, um, that was interesting because I had, <laughs> my first chapter was published by a really well-known journal, thankfully, right? But you know what's interesting is I've been getting published, I also had a book review published recently, and it was a very critical book review. And I was advised by the scholars, like, you probably won't get this approved, right? And I did. And it's not like to say I haven't had challenges, right? Sometimes you have... You know, blind peer reviewers being like, oh, um, I don't like how what you talk about Zionism or what kind of Zionism are you talking about? And I'm like, <laughs> all of Zionism, right? Like, I have to um, kind of put my foot down and Hold challenge. the line, right? Because a lot of times they try to, like, gaslight me, right? Yeah, and um, so I just kind of had to exactly toe the line. So I kind of have to stand up for myself. And sometimes I kind of get threats, like, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, as like a, in your paper, we're not going to approve it, for example. And then I learned, actually, peer reviewers don't have that power. It actually goes down to the editor. So as long as you make a good case. So what I found really useful in this case, I think in academia in general, is just having a community. For example, PCAN, which is Palestinian, Canadian, Academic and Artist Network, was founded just a couple of years ago. And <laughs> it was just so refreshing. I think a year ago when I joined them, I'm on their steering committee now, but a year ago when I joined them and, you know, I was talking about complaints. I've fortunately been facing complaints, um, you know, typical being accused, like you said, of anti-Semitism or something because of my activism. And um, somebody asked the group, like, who here had a complaint made against them as like a professor or artist? And like everybody put their hand up. <laughs> so at least in a sense, you feel like, hey, I'm not alone. Because what happens, a lot of cases kind of try to gaslight you as like a bad person 
right? You kind of have somewhat, I feel like just like some kind of support, um, someone to vent to, right? So I feel like community was really helpful and having allies who were just, you know, able to guide me, like other academics who are, you know, battling against transphobia, for example, like we're able to link about, you know, <laughs> what we're facing, right? Because academia can be very isolating. And I think having a community of people is really helpful. And um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we just find pockets to push back, right? <laughs> yeah, pushing back seems key because when you try to simply navigate through the tools that they want you to use, right? Get yourself a seat on the Board of Governors. Make a, Get a petition. Get all the faculties to sign. Get all the student groups to sign. Present it. Get it passed. And the rules change. The, the finish line is moved. And the only time, not the only time, but the successes that you've listed off to us and the gains that you've made seem to only come when you are agitating, right? Maybe going against conventional advice, going against the system head on, making public accusations, right? Like being loud, not keeping it under wraps, which is typically how things are cordial, you know, sorry, it's typically how you're encouraged to do things, right? Send an email, sit down with a private meeting with them. That only goes so far when they're going to turn around and give you a half-assed effort when when you need it. So that's a lot of that's a lot more work, right? It's like double the work every time to do it through the proper channels. Because if you don't, you'll forever be accused of co-opting the system and 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 being that agitator. So you kind of have to play the game, but also play all those side games involved, and that's got to be exhausting a little bit so thankfully you've you've seen some victories there that probably keep fueling that fire because even understanding all of the rules right to follow them can be a lot right like I remember trying to with the why you divest movement at York so that was you know attempts to get the entire university to divest from specifically weapons manufacturers. It wasn't a Palestinian issue in so much that it had to be couched that way, right? That with the limitations because it was easier uh, because of the resistance you faced anytime you said you were doing something pro-Palestine. And in fact, even the presence of Palestinian groups in that movement were enough to label anti-Semitic claims at the entire group. Um, so as a community, it's, it's nice to see that those connections are made, but at the same time, how do you like not burn out? How do you keep dealing with all of those pressures and you know you're it seems like you're always on the offense and defense right like we talk about different uses of tactics mm -hmm. but you're constantly employing both of them <laughs> it's tricky right but honestly yeah you do have to of course protect yourself because you know and sometimes that looks like just me like taking some breaks from activism um, I'm actually quite sensitive to seeing like video content so I try to avoid 
um, seeing like graphic imagery, for example. And I have my own critiques about that. I feel like a lot of times it like dehumanizes people and it contributes to, um, I don't know, like the normalization of violence and it invades the privacy of the victims. But um, yeah, I, I think... I think you can, you kind of try to do what you can at the time. For me, like, of course, um, besides when I, I'm still working on um, regarding Ahmad, I, sorry. It's okay. So basically, I'm still working regarding Ahmad, but I'm also focusing on finishing my degree. <laughs> and um, obviously, like, the PhD degree gives you a lot of power because it's like, you know, as a woman of color, you're already seen as, like, emotional, irrational, all of that. And so um, with a PhD somewhat, you're given some credibility. But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, despite all of the difficulties of had in academia, you know, I mentioned that I did publish in some really good journals. And I I am getting, like, invited, actually, instead of me having to to reach out to these publishers, right? They're reaching out to me. So I wanted to say this because I feel people talk a lot about risks going in, but there's also a lot of reward that I think when you speak from integrity, like uh, something you're passionate about, right? You're you're daring to speak on a topic a lot of people aren't, right? It that opens up a lot of opportunities. Like a lot of people are just, you know, I had a like a book about postcolonial being like we're not gonna publish until we get a chapter in Palestine. Can you please write us a chapter, right? So, um, you can't yeah, say no to that. I mean, yeah, right. So, yeah, that's really nice, and um, and and you do feel the tide is changing. And I am, I am an optimist, and I actually do believe that Palestine will be free by twenty thirty. And I have my own <laughs> explanation for this. <laughs> yeah, you you can't well, leave us like that, Gata. I know, Tell, right? <laughs> give us hope because right that that brings me a little bit of tingles. Yeah, so I remember actually when we had like, I don't know what, the York strikes, can't remember which year it was, and we had Jamal Jamai, we were inviting him as a Saya York, uh, peace, you know, uh, BDS, big BDS organizer, we brought him from Palestine, and at the time he explained how like, the BDS, like, BDS Palestine is working around like BDS South Africa, right? as a model. And so they took about 30 years to be able to dismantle the South African apartheid regime. We started BDS in 2005, right? But from what I see, there's like a great visual from Visualizing Palestine that compares the progress of the South African apartheid movement and the Palestine one. The Palestine one actually shows progress faster than the South African one, which you would hope for because <laughs> um, you know, we would hope that we would have learned from history, right? Yeah, there's a model. We know we were on the wrong side, so you'd think we would not repeat it. Right. And I think it's important because a lot of people until now, they really dismiss BDS. And um, no, BDS has been having a lot of um, work. And yes, we are seeing this worsening Israeli government and the colonization is increasing. But at the same time, we are seeing more and more people know about Palestine, speak up. We're seeing the polls change. We're seeing... Um, the Jewish community is standing up to Zionism more and more. So we are seeing this pushback. And I think even the election of this far right government is kind of like a sign of like <laughs> the end of Israeli apartheid. Right. Because even absolutely, yeah, right. because as as power slips, the fist grows tighter. Right. And often that has a detrimental effect in the end. It, it backfires. But it's what the powerful do 
when they realize they're losing that grip a little bit, right? They squeeze a little tighter. So surely I agree that that is a sign. Yeah, and the mask is just slipping more and more, you know, whatever facade there is. That's why you're seeing Israelis protesting now because it's like more overt the fascism. But yeah, I guess um, I, I personally believe like, um, and it's just so interesting. I read this book, I think it was um, the Ali Abu Nima, you know, something, um, Justice in Palestine. I need to get the name of the book, <laughs> but uh, Battle for Justice in Palestine. And so the book, which I think it was there where it was talking about how, you know, nobody expected South African apartheid to fall just six months before it did, right? Like things, when they turn, they can change so fast. So I think about the same thing that we're likely to be seeing in Palestine. Besides all the on-ground resistance we're seeing, we're seeing, you know, violent resistance, non-violent resistance, cross 48 Palestine, Gaza. So... You know, I think I saw yesterday on the news, Gaza Strip, you know, they're burning tires and just like directing the wind towards like <laughs> the Israelis, like, like they're just doing anything at their disposal every day to resist. Right. So um, I see I how that gives you like for folks who can't see Gata, her face lights up as she <laughs> speaks about these which seem like really small acts of resistance, perhaps to us, but inherently put those people in danger and just... I think I just wanted to make note of it because those are like sparks that really keep the diaspora going. We've had guests on here before that have spoken about what it feels like to see the resistance and not necessarily the violence, because I understand, but parts of the videos that do kind of show that even under these conditions, if they can keep fighting, surely you can keep fighting. Yeah, exactly. It takes so much of my strength from people back home. Even like Ahmed, you know, in his last trial, he was smiling, you know, like he has so much strength to still smile. And like, um, you know, I just I just saw the journalist, you know, how are you doing solitary confinement? And he's like, you know, God willing, I'll be free. Like, you know, and it just it broke my heart. Even when he's asking the lawyer, like, is it haram to commit suicide? Like, it's horrible. But at the same time, it's like, you know, this young man is just holding on to his faith. And, and um, yeah, it's just really inspires me to just keep fighting whatever I can, because I know I am privileged in so many ways. And another thing I try to keep aware of also is, like, um, staying in touch with folks back home, my family. And, um, you know, because I have my own privilege here, and I do often visit Palestine, of course, the occupied West Bank. But yeah, it's, um, I think that was actually my first trip to Palestine as like a teenager. So I was old enough to understand what was happening. That was really what motivated me to do my activism around Palestine. Because um, <laughs> there's so much like Twitter debate about like, don't visit Palestine. But um, BDS, which is, you know, endorsed by a large segment of Palestinian civil society, says actually, encourages people to visit Palestine, specifically the occupied, you know, Palestinian territories. And of course, if you are, you know, going on Palestinian-led tours, supporting Palestinian businesses. And from my experience, actually visiting Palestine, even as a Palestinian, was just huge because you don't realize the violence really until you're there. Like you see the Israeli snipers pointing at you just for driving middle of the day for no reason, right? Or settlers walking around with like huge... <laughs> guns or um, just like the settlers, you know, just, you know, invade your village and break watermelons, just wreak havoc, they'll, you know, burn some trees. And so you just, you see all 
of that's happening. And at the same time, you just see the beauty of like the Palestinian people, their generosity, their like, it's just, um, it just really inspires to be like, wow, this is such an enormous injustice and I want to do something like to help. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny, not funny, but even visiting back home has its own controversy built into it, right? I feel like you had to almost justify to me there the fact that you would go home and visit family. I mean, I, I yeah, understand that the premise that you may be giving money to the Zionist government through your travels. Yeah, the controversy is more based to like it's directed to non-Palestinians who are visiting Palestine. I but would for me, hope it's like, so because I think yeah. that line has to be very distinct. That yeah. we cannot tell people in exile that they should have the right to return, but not yet. No, no. of course. And um, but no, even for non-Palestinians, as far as I understand, um, even my experience, like most Palestinians welcome when people come because it's like they get to see what's happening. And actually, Israel has been trying to prevent people from go to the West Bank or prevent, you know, like discourage people. It's dangerous because they don't want people to see the truth. And I, I want to be careful around that because some people say, "Oh, I never visited to like know the truth." You don't have to visit it, right? And the the you know reality isn't sometimes all that real. Like a lot of it's manufactured to look in a, you know, right when you go on an Israeli-led tour. Oh, I've heard that even myself. Like I can't comment on. Palestine and Israel because I have not visited it. That yeah. has been told to me many, 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 many times. So yeah, and this I, is I didn't like know anyone would a... be so nervy as to <laughs> level that at a Palestinian. But um, yeah. yeah, no, no. I, get, I get that. I yeah, saw no, it's such moved to Cuba. Apparently, <laughs> which I it's such a ridiculous argument, do. right? As if like you know, for me, I think what's the most important when learning about any place is like centering the voice of like the people who are being oppressed, right? In this case, listening to Palestinians on the ground. And like, there's like so much scholarship. And even I on Palestine, I mean, now it's hard to see it as a Canadian because this new law. <laughs> but like, um, you know, there there's so many now with like social media, like you just see things happening like all the time, right? You, you don't really need to be there. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, yeah, I just I just want to say I, I, I think it's unfortunate sometimes people I feel like they just, you know, activists sometimes like just to like pit you know, each other against each other and it's not helpful. <laughs> well, we're getting near the end of our time and like I said, I know especially this audience, but even the broader general public here in Canada does not agree with the tenets of Zionism nor the behaviors of the Israeli government. What can your everyday person, I know we hold a lot more power than we think we do, but let's just call ourselves everyday regular people. What can we do to free political prisoners or to realize a free Palestine in 2030? I think honestly, whatever is in your capacity, right? So maybe that just looks like signing the occasional petition. And honestly, that's great. You know, maybe that looks like, um, you know, maybe you're, you're working for an NGO and you can get them to issue a statement or, you know, you're, you can email your MP calling for the Freedom of Ahmed. Even just, you know, educating yourself about Palestine, keeping in touch about what's going on. Uh, BDS is huge for us. So trying to get companies to divest from... You know, some of the, the biggest um, 
people think BDS is like targeting all Israeli companies, but actually targets um, the few and some of the worst human rights violators. So you can find that on the BDS movement's website. They include like HP, um, Israeli fruits and vegetables, right? So these these are the some of the biggest on our list. So yeah, how do we ensure we're boycotting, divestment, divesting from complicit? How are we implementing academic boycott against um, Israel? So yeah, we all have our own interests, skills, and time and right and privilege to push in our own way. So I think when people put their mind to it, anything's possible. Because when it came to the birthday protests, it was just a small idea and it was me and honestly just a bunch of my friends, most of them not even Palestinian, who like organized it and it was beautifully done and it was actually watched by Ahmed Manasseh's mom like that was so powerful to me right so you know if, if at the very least just that Ahmed knows that there's people about him who care right and everybody on his birthday was talking about him for me that was huge right so I think um yeah it's important just like stay hopeful um don't don't get cynical because at the end of the day yeah like Israel's an apartheid regime it's not gonna you know these these oppressive regimes they don't last forever and we as the people have the power to overturn that. And yeah, so I'll <laughs> leave it there. I love your optimism. And thank you so much for visiting the show and sharing your experience. And mostly for just continuing to do the work that you do. I'll be sure to link a lot of this stuff back into the show notes so folks can dive into it deeper. Look at BDS. Perhaps we can load up that visual that gives you hope in seeing a free Palestine a lot sooner than I think maybe us pessimists would have thought. But I am renewed in my hope here, um, not just speaking to you, but seeing the truth on your face and the way that you light up thinking about it. And so um, surely that's contagious. So thank you so much, Gata. Thank you, Jessa. Always a pleasure talking to you. Yes. <laughs> that is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.